0: Okay. Good afternoon. We are together for our Friday afternoon Erev Shabbat Torah class with Rabbi Akiva Zweig, Rosh Yeshiva at the Talmudic University of Florida, and the spiritual guide of the Hemisphere Torah Learning Program. Today we are together for the Henry and Lisa Manusheri Parsha Shear on Parsha's B'Shalach. The topics will be embracing the throes of transformation and training our brains to conquer pain. On the pain topic, a special feature today will be a dialogue with Dr. Uh, Joel Finkelstein on the neuroscience of pain. The month of Shvat is dedicated by Frida Greenbar, in memory of her beloved parents Anna Henya and Max Moto Pinchas their Holocaust survivors on a daily basis taught their family unconditional love, honor, humility and respect for family, friends and community, wonderful values. Their commitment to Jewish traditions, open hearts and home demonstrated their devotion to the survivor community, Eretz Israel and served as an inspiration to their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. This class is also dedicated to the memory of the beloved father of Dr. Finkelstein, Eliezer Ben Yaakov, Yosef Halevi. Uh, if you want to listen to the share again or share it with somebody else, a recording will be posted afterwards, and you can also find it on podcasts and YouTube. Let us know if you need details. And uh, without any further ado, Rabbi Akiva Zweig and Parshas beshalach
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Always a joy to be with you. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. And as Aaron Yehuda mentioned, God willing, uh, Dr. Finkelstein will join us as well for a conversation regarding the neuroscience of pain. Can everybody hear me okay? Perfect. Okay. So this week is Parshas beshalach and as our new mentioned, it is the Henry and Lisa Manushari Parshashi Or, and we wish that the neshamos of Frida Greenbaum's parents should have an aliyah. Frida herself is promoting the cause of community building, Torah learning, and bringing people closer to Judaism in her life. We very much appreciate her participation and support. Uh, for those of you who attend the Wednesday morning share, you know she is our hostess of the Wednesday mornings, and. Uh, we are also commemorating the passing of Rabbi Yol, Dr. Joel Finkelstein's father, Eliezer bin Yaakov Yosef Halevi, and the Neshamos should have an Aliyah. Mm-hmm. So what we are discussing today is the unique feature of the Jewish experience in the desert, which was their food, also called man. The Torah says that when they saw it, they didn't know what it was exactly, and they said manhu. It is man. Man is almost uh, a question of, What is it? Which is fascinating that the known name for this miraculous food, which in scripture in Tehillian, King David refers to as lechem abirim, the bread of the heroes or of the mighty, and it's actually uh, referring to angels. It's like angel food. Anybody ever wanted to know where the expression angel food cake came from? It's probably the mud. And so it's fascinating that the name that actually stuck as the name for this heavenly food, instead of being called miracle food, uh, heavenly food, angel food, it's actually called, what is it? Mun, which means what is it? And so that's one of the questions that we're going to try to tackle today. In addition to that, before we go more into the Mun, we're going to come back to the Mun. If we notice the Jewish experience in the desert, I think we need to ask a very obvious question. The Jewish people leave Egypt, as we know, on the 15th of Nisan and the beginning of the parsha talks about the fact that Pyro sent them out and the Jewish people were wandering, so to speak, in the desert, although they were not lost because they were guided by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So they were not really lost, but they made pretend as though they were lost so that Egypt would become interested in chasing after them. And the whole experience happens with the splitting of the Red Sea. Now what's really interesting is that Hashem is obviously not afraid of making the Jewish people afraid because the truth is Hashem could have somehow convinced the Egyptians to go into the Red Sea even, before the, even after the Jewish people had already crossed safely over to the other side. Obviously, there are many ways that the story of the splitting of the Red Sea could have unfolded. And what the Torah does describe is that the Jewish people were petrified. They had Egypt coming after them on one side. They had the Red Sea on the other side. They had no escape, and they were terrified, and they began to complain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, but why did God construct events that would be necessary for the Jewish people to become terrified. And then finally, the Jewish people cross over and they have the most literally amazing experience in world history. Uh, Everything in the Midrashim makes the whole event sound literally mind-blowing, 12 different streams, fruit were growing from the side, fresh water was accessible, uh, fruits and other, you know, nourishment was available to them as the Jewish people were crossing through. It's something mind-blowing when you put it all together. And as we know, the Jewish people commemorate this event by singing a tremendous song of praise to Hashem that we call the Shirah, and that's just amazing. What happens next? Moshe causes the Jewish people to travel away from the Yamsuf and they get to a place where the water is bitter. Right. Even though when crossing the Red Sea, they had literally every every imaginable amenity available to them. As soon as they finish that experience and they are done with the Red Sea, they travel for three days. They cannot find water and they get to a place. The water is bitter. And that becomes a whole story in itself. God sends a miracle through Moshe. He throws a tree into the water. The water becomes sweet. Fine. Then they have a nice experience at a place called Ailen, where there are 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. That sounds good. And then again, they're traveling in the desert and they're now wondering about food, right? They've been on the road for a while now. At this point, the Torah describes it's 30 days' journey that they are now in Egypt. And wow, Dr. Fiddleston is here already. Um, if you mind, just
2: uh,
1: perfect. Okay and now they're at a 30 days journey into the desert and now they don't have food so what happens so Hashem brings them to a place where they're afraid that they don't have food so the people complain hey look there's no food here and Hashem says to Moshe don't worry i'm going to rain down food for them from the heavens and the people will know that i am Hashem they will experience this man In the morning and in the evening and everything will be great okay that's what Hashem says to Moshe and then of course the people you know still are complaining and they want meat meat they want meat to eat and so Hashem says okay we're going to get them slug which is a heavenly quail and they get the man and they get the meat and everything seems wonderful but then, hey, look, there's a day that it doesn't fall, which we know is Shabbos. Some of them go out to look for the man. They can't find it. Some of them leave over a bun in order to make sure that they don't run out of food. And that becomes wormy. And then they learn about Shabbos. Okay, very interesting. And then the next experience that happens is that they're traveling in a, and they get to a place and they camp in a place called Rafidim. And again, there's no water. And they become thirsty and they complain. And then that's when Moshe hits the rock. Ra- legitimately, this time Moshe was supposed to hit the rock and they get water. But you know, the name of the place is called Masa Umriva, which is testing and fighting, arguing. That's the name of the place because of the arguing and the testing of Hashem that the people did in that place. And the people actually specifically said, Hey, look, is God in our midst or not? And then of course, the icing on the cake, which is the end of the parsha, Amalek comes to attack them and attacks them from behind and is somewhat successful in killing the vulnerable Jews. And then we have the war against Amalek where Yeshua weakens Amalek and ultimately is able to stave them off and destroy enough Amalekim that the attack is thwarted. And that's the end of the Parsha where Hashem declares that there's a war against Amalek from generation to generation. I want to ask you all a very simple question. And this is what I meant at the beginning, the important question that we need to ask. Why does God make it so difficult? He gives them man, which is the most incredible food that man has ever experienced. It can taste like anything they want it to taste. And it comes every day. And if a person is righteous, it comes right to their door. I don't know about you, but like waiting for that package, which you're wondering if it's going to come, which is really annoying, right? The man wasn't like that. Unless we misbehaved, the man came reliably every single day, right? Every time that they needed something, They asked for it, and they complained for it, and they got it. But why does Hashem have to create it to be so difficult? When they're crossing over the Red Sea, everything is there for them. But immediately after the Red Sea, there's no water. They're thirsty. Three days, they can't find water. And the place that they get to is bitter water. And then they need food. And then they need water. And then Amalek comes. Really? It's like, why is all that necessary? It just seems crazy. Now, I know we can say... Hey, look, Hashem is testing the Jews. Okay, I mean, what is this? You know, this is some kind of test where we just get tested and then, you know, get a little break and then get tested again. Like, what is the purpose in all that? That's the overarching question that I think is very important because I think what most of us do is, hey, look, what's wrong with these Jews? When are they going to just trust Hashem already? That's true. Okay, we could also ask that question. But instead of asking that question, I'm choosing to ask the flip side question is, what is Hashem doing? Hashem obviously could make it much easier for them. Instead of the water being bitter, they could have water that's sweet. Instead of three days with no water to find, I mean, after all, they, you know, I think we're gonna need to invent, God willing, in the future, a new form of GPS. Instead of GPS, which should be called uh DPS, which would be the divine, you know, system of navigation, right? They have that, so take them to where there's water, for heaven's sake, right? I mean, is it that? So difficult, and obviously Hashem can make water to be there anyways, wherever uh, Hashem wants it to be. So what is the reason for all of this trial and tribulation? Then I'd like to share with you one more question, which is the question that hopefully we're going to discuss more in detail with Dr. Finkelstein, and that is, there's a fascinating argument in the Talmud about the man. So here's the story with the man. If you read the sentences here and you read the sentences later in the Torah and Parshas, The man is apparently a rather delightful looking and delicious tasting food. For those of you that like pancakes or French toast at least, because the Torah tells us that it was like honey, wafer, you know, that was the appearance, that was the taste of the man, which is like a fried cake with honey. Most people like that. And it was very pleasant looking, uh, white seeds, maybe looking like coriander, Okay, and it fell, and it had a layer of protection below and a layer of protection above, which is, by the way, why we have two coverings for the hawa, a cover below and a cover on top to remind us of the man. Okay, that's pretty phenomenal. And if we go with the Talmud, the Talmud says that the man could taste like most any food, almost any food. If you wanted it to taste like chicken, great. Pastrami, great. cholin great. You know, cocoa, whatever you wanted it to taste like is what it could taste like. Okay. But the Torah also says in Sefer Devarim that Hashem kind of tested us with the mind. That's a language of a, a sentence in Sefer Devarim. And not only that, over here in Parashat B'shalach, the Torah has a very interesting language, which says that I'm sending them this food and that I, in order that I should test him, will he go in my Torah or not? Meaning, will the Jewish people go in my Torah or not? This is chapter 15, sentence 4. Hashem said to Moshe, behold, I'm going to rain down to you bread from the heaven and the people will go out daily, to uh, each, so to speak, matter day by day, in order in order that I will test him if he will go in my Torah or not. Now Rashi has an interesting uh, comment here. Rashi says, in order to see if he's going to go in my Torah or not, meaning, will he observe the commandments of the month? For example... They're not allowed to leave over man for the next day. I know it's a very terrible thing for us men to hear that we have to finish all of our food, uh, but that was one of the tests of the man. Don't keep any for the next day. You have to go gather the next day a separate portion. And also you have to collect twice on Friday and not collect any on Shabbos. So I'm going to test them to see if it's going to keep the mitzvos of the man. That's the way Rashi learns. But the truth is that the Torah sale is much more general than that and other Rishonim do learn this way, is that the man is a sort of a testing ground to see if the Jewish people will keep the entire Torah or not. And the obvious question is, how is the man a testing ground for that? So, of course, some people say, well, do you trust that the man is going to come the next day or not? So it's a question of what does that mean, this sentence when Hashem says, I'm giving him this food from heaven in order to test him if he will observe in my commandments or not. Okay, now here's a very fascinating comment from the Talmud. The Talmud in discussing the man points out that the man is considered to be an affliction of sorts, meaning it's a painful experience of some way. And here the Talmud says two opinions as to why the man is an affliction. Two different rabbis, two different opinions. One opinion says the reason (coughs) that the man was an affliction is because the man only came for the day. The man did not build up a storage capacity where a person could have in his pantry mun for the next few days, right? It needed to be finished that day. He wasn't allowed to leave any over. And therefore the mun needed to actually be finished. And therefore a person never knew if he had the next meal's food or not until it arrived the next day. And not having food in storage for the next meal is considered to be a painful experience. The rabbis I say that a poor person who's wondering where his next meal is going to come from, (coughs) doesn't feel satisfied (coughs) even with the food that he has because he's too busy, emotionally anxious about where the food is coming from the next day. So that's one explanation of why the man is considered to be painful. A separate opinion in the Talmud says, the reason the man is considered to be painful is because even though the man was able to taste like any food that you wanted, it could be the Ashkenazi food, the Moroccan food, the Syrian food, the et cetera, et cetera, the Hungarian food, the, you know, all of that. But it never changed appearance. It did not look like goulash. This is why I'm saying it to Joseph, because I'm looking at Joseph. Um, it did not look Hungarian. It only looked like mud. And it's not satisfying to a person to look at one thing, but to be eating a different thing, because that's almost like eating in a dark room. And the Talmud says something very interesting. A blind person (laughs) never gets fully satisfied from his food because he can't can't see what he's eating, right? As we know in cuisine, of course, you use the word cuisine when you talk about a fine dining experience. (laughs) Preparation of appearance is critical, right? Food needs to look pleasing (laughs) in order to round out the experience to its ultimate extent. And so a blind person doesn't get satisfied from his food, and therefore the man is a painful experience. And the Talmud over here seems to be taking it as a given that you know nobody's going to keep the generic taste of the man because hey, this is really cool. I can make it taste like anything. So therefore, most of the time, a person is going to be thinking a different food than what he's actually looking at, and that's a painful experience. So here we have a very interesting fact. According to everybody in the Talmud, the man only landed for the day, you couldn't store up for the next day. And even though the, the food of the month was able to taste like many, many different things, it would never change appearance, which everybody agrees is a painful fact of the month. So my question is, if everybody agrees to the basic facts that the month didn't change appearance and you only had a month for the day and not for the next day, so why is there an argument in the Talmud about What is the pain of the man? Everybody should agree. There's two difficulties with the man. Number one, you can't really see what you're eating because it didn't change appearance when you were imagining it to be something else. And number two, you never had more than today's food, except for, of course, Friday, where you had the Shabbos food, which is a whole conversation unto itself. So my question is, why is there an argument in the Talmud? Why is it two different opinions? Everybody should agree. That there are two painful facts of the man. And then lastly, we have to ask ourselves, again, similar to our first question, if God can make it rain food from heaven and he can make a land on your doorstep, and he can make it that whatever you think is what it is, so why doesn't he give you more than one day at a time? And why doesn't he allow it to change appearance as as well? Like God can't do that? Obviously, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So it must be inherent that God wants us to have that pain. So why is it an argument in the Talmud as to which pain it is? And why does God want us to have any pain, period? Let him make it easy. And so from here, I think we have to say and learn a hugely important lesson that is so uh, important for all of us to internalize, because hopefully it will allow us to approach life with greater equanimity, a greater sense of understanding, and also purpose where we can achieve what Hashem is really trying to teach us. At the end of the day, the, the Torah is telling us that human beings, I know this is going to sound really weird, um, but human beings, as they are born and as they generally begin their development, are not who human beings are supposed to be. Human beings are actually supposed to work on themselves and become much higher beings than the way that they were initially created. Now, of course, this is true post sin, but it's even true pre-sin. So at the therefore, the, the, all of this that the Torah is telling us here is that getting ready, uh, meaning a person getting ready for an intimate relationship with Hashem and with an ultimate future in mind that man should experience infinity and eternity is going to require a tremendous transformation of beingness, I know it sounds crazy, but not all transformation is without pain. Actually, pain instigates a person to look deeply into themselves, to see reality differently, and to be able to become a different level being. That's the point. And so therefore, post the Kriya Shamsu, the splitting of the Red Sea experience, which as the rabbis tell us, that even a maidservant, at the splitting of the Red Sea, had a greater level of prophecy than Yeheskel Ben Buzi when he saw the most esoteric, mind-blowing prophecy uh, that almost any human being ever experienced, called Maase Merkava, which is the the divine chariots of Hashem and all the super high-level angels and you know the the imagery of Hashem and the the throne of glory, so to speak. All of that, the the maid servant, at the Red Sea, had a higher level of prophecy than Yechaskol Ben Buzi in that most esoteric and unbelievable of all prophecies. Okay, that's what they experienced for the moment. Unbelievable. But the question is, are they now ready for a whole new level of existence? And the answer is, not without work. Or in other words, not without pain and transformation. Now, Obviously, we can see that as great as these people were, there was plenty of work to do. As we know, before the splitting of the Red Sea, hey, didn't we tell you don't take us out of Egypt? Aren't there enough graves in Egypt that you can bury us in Egypt, et cetera, et cetera? So these people needed to be given, if you want to call it tests, go, 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 go for it. I would call it opportunities to re-examine themselves, to ask themselves, hey, look, you know, maybe. Maybe water, you know, even though it's really, really important, maybe we can control ourselves and ask for water in a way that's polite and caring and recognizing all the good that Hashem has done for us until this point, instead of complaining and bitter like the waters themselves tasted, which was like bitterness. In fact, there's a Hasidic explanation when it says that the waters were bitter. It's not referring to the water, it's referring to the people. The people were bitter, right? The Jewish people were bitter right? Maybe they could think of how to look at themselves in a way that was not so bitter. My friend Joseph Rackman told me a beautiful story of one of the wealthiest men he ever met. He gave away millions and millions of dollars and he was a Holocaust survivor and somebody said to him, how did you become so generous? He says, me? You think think I'm generous? Let me tell you a story. When I was in the camps, I was starving and I sat next to a man and he had a potato and I asked him if I could have some of his potato. And that man gave me half of his potato, half of everything that he owned in the world. He gave to me. He said, that's generosity. I have money, I can give away money, but to give a person half and the the desperate half, right, the, the the food that they literally need in order to live, to give half of that away, that's generosity. It takes great people, great suffering to become that generous. And therefore, what's happening after the Red Sea is very intentional on the part of Hashem. These people need transformation. Sure, I can bring them to the highest levels. I can give them those tremendous prophecies and physical experiences with fresh water coming out of a saltwater sea and fresh fruit, you know, growing on the side and a dry bedrock to walk on and and, and their enemies, you know, caving in and dying and you know, suffering behind them. Yeah, I can give them the most incredible experience of all time, but have they really changed to the next levels that they need of transformation in order to have the ultimate relationship with me? And therefore, in one case after another, Hashem is giving them opportunities of transformation. Comes along the man, which is a 40-year gift, which the Torah tells us they needed to preserve to show people this gift, And there is an inherent pain in the mind. And over here, the rabbis are telling us something incredible. When it comes to pain, a person truly only experiences one pain at a time, even if he has multiple pains. Even if a person is experiencing different pains, a person always only experiences the most intense pain. The example I usually give, a person gets a paper cut, that hurts. That's annoying. But if at the same moment after the paper cut, they then stub their toe, they forget about the paper cut. Paper cut doesn't count anymore. And so therefore what the rabbis are telling us is that when it came to the man, a person would experience whichever pain was most intense for him. Is that the emotional anxiety of not knowing where my next meal comes from that captures my grain Or is it the fact that, you know, I'm trying to eat challenge, but it looks like, you know, looks like French toast. You know, that's not comfortable. Right. And the rabbis are telling us that it's a question of what does a person consider the most um, attached feeling that they have? I need the financial security of knowing where my next meal comes from, or I need the physical sensation of seeing what I'm eating. Now, either it depends on the person or the rabbis are telling us that it's a straightforward argument about which is worse for a person. Either way, the real message of the rabbis is that when it comes to pain, the brain latches onto pain, it becomes focused on the pain, and that becomes the experience of the person unless they learn to move the pain to the side for something more important. I'll share a personal uh, thing about this. Uh, we're gonna go, I'm going to go just three more minutes and then we're going to get Dr. Finkelstein because I know uh, Aaron Yehuda has a hard stop at 2 o'clock and I would like him to be here for at least some of that conversation. Personal experience that I had is when I was going through my divorce, there was a period of time when I wasn't allowed to see my children. And I'm speaking to one of my lawyers saying, like, how am I supposed to deal, deal with that? And they told me I needed to compartmentalize. And I'm thinking, how do you compartmentalize not seeing your five children that was really hard for me but you know what life can be really hard that way and he was right as much as i really hated him in that moment okay he was right he was right that is the message of the month are you going to focus on the fact that hey you can't see what you're eating or you don't know where your next meal is coming from or are you able to move that to the side and say Thank you, Hashem, for the food that I have. I'm going to study Torah today. I'm going to go be with my family today. I'm going to do the important things in my life that I need to do today. Because, hey, my day is taken care of. It is. In the morning, I gather enough food for the day, and I'm good. Or am I going to be like, oh, but what am I going to do about tomorrow? Oh, I can't see what I mean. This is so uncomfortable. And instead of paying attention to my wife and my children and my business and my Torah, I'm going to be like, oh, no, I can't think because, like, I'm too busy. You know, I can't, you know, what's going to be <coughs> with the stock market? And what about my real estate asset? And la, 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 la. Says the Torah, I'm going to give him man with inherent pain to see if he can really transform himself and learn how to compartmentalize his pain. And therefore, the man is a test, not only for the mitzvahs of the man, like Rashi says, and I think maybe Rashi even agrees with this. Let's first see if he can do these mitzvahs, because these are really hard not leaving over food for the next day, not trying to gather extra, you know, so that I that, that I, I will have for tomorrow, not going out to collect on Shabbos and saying, hey, but what's going to be about Sunday? Finally got a day with two days of food. You know, maybe I should, you know, go tomorrow and make sure I can get a little extra. And if any one of you think that this is not so, you know, realistic, you've never been to a Jewish kiddush or one that comes after, you know, <laughs> a breakfast with lunch to follow and the kiddush in the middle. <sighs> Right? It's like it's like desperate, you know. Is there gonna be enough food for me, even though I've already eaten? I will eat again in an hour, but I need to make sure that I get everything at the kiddish. There's a comedian, I think, who once invented a very long fork so that he could, you know, be at the back and just spear what he wanted. Right? That's the sad truth of our attachment to food, our attachment to our security, our attachment to what we quote unquote need. We tend to not learn to put our pain to the side, and that is the message of the mind. So what I asked Dr. Finkelstein today is if he would talk about the neuroscience behind pain, and is it true, in fact, that a person really only focuses on one pain at a time, et cetera? And I have the privilege of having Dr. Finkelstein join us for Shabbos. And So here he is. He was able to come on time, which
3: we're very, very thrilled about. Good to see everybody. We, can you can have try, the floor. Try to try get both of us together, yeah, maybe. We can, Oh, great, that's perfect. Okay, good to see everybody. Thank you guys. Um, So uh, first of all, it's great to share. And uh, second of all, let's talk a bit about pain and uh, and reward because really, it's really not possible in, in the brain to separate the experience of value and hedonic experience from the process of learning. So those two things are virtually identical in terms of how the brain operates. And it's impossible to have values or to have things that are that feel hedonic and pleasurable, without also having an association around uh, learning and behaviors that that those subsequently reinforce. So a good example of this is you know I I, I can learn to uh, to go to the refrigerator and get something to eat when I'm hungry, and and being hungry and feeling full and satisfied reinforces everything that goes into the the act of getting up, get, going to the refrigerator, the task of opening it up pulling out the food that I want all of those things are reinforced every time I love the food I'm eating
1: so what you're saying is forgetting about pain for the moment that well the, part of what happens in experiencing pleasure is pleasure becomes a way of embedding teaching
3: that's exactly right pleasure and teaching are, are synonymous and pain is, is is identical with pleasure in the sense that in the sense that when you have pain, but what, what, what that does is, the, is it immediately sets off another set of motivated behaviors for avoiding pain because the, avoiding pain is pleasure, right? When I when I'm finally get rid of the pain, that feels great.
1: That's <laughs> called telling a person that you don't want to have a conversation
3: with them. Yeah, S- speaking of which my mother just called, so I'll call her <laughs> but, but anyway, the, the point is that my <laughs> <laughs> point is that that with it's impossible to separate out these values from the learning that inculcates them. Okay, so so in some sense, when you when we when we think about the mod, it's interesting because right off the bat we're looking at the dimensionality. There's a hierarchical problem. So when we think about values and appetitive behaviors that are they, they generate sequences of of repertoires of, of behaviors that that then become reinforced, products and learn. Okay. So there are hierarchies of these inside of our brain, and we can, and those hierarchies can be, I'm on the one hand, a doc- I want to become a doctor, so I'm going to medical school, you know, and, and that, and what I'm doing and studying for this test is competing with every other possible thing that I could find pleasure from. Right, okay, so, so in other words, what you're saying
1: is that when a person, like a person determines a goal, and they say, okay, I, I want to achieve this goal, And then they put themselves through a lot of painful experiences in order to achieve that goal, whether it's waking up early or spending long hours studying, when on the other hand, they could be going to the beach and having a good
3: time. And in action selection or in in behavior selection, there's always a competition between which of these behaviors I should be selecting in order to optimize my pleasure. Now, there are two specific biases that are are well characterized, and and these are generalities, but they're useful. One of them is, is an immediacy bias, meaning what's gonna pleasure me right now, right? And that has to do with the primary visual cortex. We are extremely visual creatures, right? When, when, when I'm worried about what's happening right now, I'm, I'm thinking about not, not whether I wanna graduate from medical school, not whether I want to accumulate all the wealth in the world, but I'm hungry. I see this, this looks good. My senses are activated. Not let's I get,
1: lose weight.
3: Not I wanna lose weight. Right, there's a primacy to, to the sensory component in motivating and hijacking the hierarchies of behaviors, right? So now the, the sensory component is now driving the behavior entirely. Humans are extremely visual creatures. Of all mammals, there is not a single other mammal that has the rich capacity for sensory intake through the eyes that we have. We are the best seers of all the mammals, bar none. Okay, so when it comes to the immediacy of reward processing, like the, the, the sensory input, can be that's, that's thinking fast and slow. This is system one thinking, very fast, very informed by senses, not contemplated, right? And, and very sensory. So that's, that's one way in which we can get our, our, our repertoires of behaviors can get hijacked and pulled in certain directions. But there's another way, which is I may decide that I want to rule the world and I'm going to accumulate things and think long-term about what I'm doing and, and, re- and relegate all of my behaviors towards long term gain. Right. So, the interesting thing is that that's slower thinking that tends to be a bit slower. Right. So, and it's more abstract because there's because anytime I have a higher level goal, I have to think of several different, more abstract ways of doing this. It's things not like, things that I can't see. Things that I can't see, I, I, I need to accumulate. So, these are actually the two parts of the mind to some extent, the two pains of the mon that are being described. Because if you think about it, where's my food coming from? What sustains me? Well, there's two goes. One is I'm hungry. I got to eat. Whatever's in front of me and, and my experience, controlling my, ex- my immediate experience is the source of, of continuity. That's the mistake. Fast food. Fast right? The, 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 sort of the, the, the mistake is that my, what my control of my immediate environment, what's immediately present, that's what's important. and that And that by itself is uninformed. And then the, the alternative is that you, you might think that I can just accumulate wealth and then I, I, that's going to guarantee my children will live forever. The people who think that the accumulation of wealth and the building the best fortress in the world is going to save them, that that's the source of infinite life, none of those civilizations are around anymore. The storehouses are grain have all burnt out. The pyramids have all fallen apart. There's no amount of hoarding that's going to save a civilization or create a pathway to infinite growth the ones that decided they can be impulsive and follow into sensory sensory activities and that's going to guide their decision making the the privilege of rape of pillage the immediacy they're not around either okay so right between those two is a sweet spot where where we can gear our sensor we can gear our reward towards towards and this is the question what is the ultimate source of reward that's really the question what's the ultimate source of pleasure and so what we're learning is that that you know there the it says when it says when Hashem says he's going to you know teach them through this 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 kind of test he says it's a davar yom liyom right Byom, byomna. yom liyoma yom so it's like it's a davar from the, from day from the immediate day to the next day right which is which those are the two dimensions and a davar is both an abstract thing and it's something that is uh, that is it, it's both a word and a thing it's both of those things. Right so the idea is that what we're learning what we're learning is that our that that when you want to raise if you want to find a pathway towards infinite life it's in obedience to a higher it's in obedience to a higher source beyond what you can see and beyond what you think you could even plan
1: and maybe that's why it's called none because it's not really definable that's a great point because it comes from something that we don't really understand
3: and know and that's why our Torah. What's amazing about this is that's why our Torah like has produced like you know the question is how do you make sure that your children become menches, right? And our Torah has given us this incredibly reliable way of doing that. And here we are, and like we're we're pretty lonely relative to the other civilizations that haven't ha- haven't arrived on this, right? So the idea is that that when you when you do tune into that, it gives you something. It gives you capacity for for you know. In, there's no guarantee. There's no way to seize material to ensure that your children will become, you know, will become, divinely guided people. That they will grow into their full potential of them of controlling themselves. There's no way to guarantee that. And so the, the Torah is the way. Like that. That's when you inculcate this, then you guarantee that the only known path for for a civilization to regenerate itself over and over and over again reliably. That's it.
1: So I think what you're saying is is that in order to guarantee future generations and existence, we really have to be teaching people to get comfortable with transformation, get comfortable with not needing to consume and to hoard everything, not needing immediate pleasure, right? Not needing to control, but rather giving ourselves over to, on some level, uh, Hashem, but really over to the process of putting my need to the side and focusing on on you know the bigger picture things
3: or even or even in the torah itself i think that there's there's a um there's a sense that like the domain of control itself is then is then attributed to 613 meets vote so when it comes to how we're spending our time when it comes to how we're we're you know we're, we're thinking about our life we, they become encased in an exoskeleton of of options of choices that that are that are constrained that are that are Canalizing, be creating a kind of canal of, 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 uh, of our behaviors towards a specific uh, state.
1: So yeah, so let, let's just get to one point because I see it's being asked on the chat as well. So I'm suggesting that the reason that there are two pains for the man and that there's an argument is because the truth is that a person is only going to experience the more painful one to them. Yes. That's what a brain experiences. Yeah. And therefore, it's an argument as maybe as to which one a person normally experiences, or maybe it depends on the kind of person, but you don't experience two pains simultaneously. So that,
3: that's the that's that's task positive network. So when, when your brain is engaged in a given task, it activates a network that, that literally transforms the world into the dimensions of the task that you're fulfilling. And it sequences that through both space and time. Right. That the world transforms that I'm gonna go get my sandwich into a pathway to my to my refrigerator and the bread and, and all the, the location of these things in a sequence to roll to, to roll that out. Right. So so what, what the rabbi's saying is right. He pointed out, like, you know, that there's that this is true when you stub your toe and cut your finger. But let's imagine you're starving. Okay. You get you're you're on you're starving. You have one set of sequences, which is hunt, find, and eat, unless you're dying of thirst. And if you're dying, if if you're if you're thirsty to death, obviously your first sequence is dig for water and then worry about this other thing later. But let's say you're, you're, you're dying of thirst and you're starving and you're underwater and you're going to suffocate. Well, guess what came next now, right? Thirst can come later, right? And, and hunting comes later. Your task positive network is all about swimming to the surface. So when we're talking about these two, these two conflicting pains, we're really saying these are the different biases that have to be subdued. They're different for different people and they're ultimate for each people they're different for. So that's that's how the that's how the the the, the conquest of the task-positive network is is being tuned. And what we're saying is, right in the middle of those is the M.S. Right in the middle of these is there. There's a way in which our task-positive network is about orienting towards Hashem, seeing that as the positive reward, and then that that being an enduring thing that outpaces these other rewards. Mm-hmm. In any case. And that's what the the Torah really
1: means. That the, later in Deuteronomy it says, "This man came to teach us that it's not really through bread." that a person lives is through the word of Hashem. So ultimately it's really about connection to Hashem that gives us vitality and compartmentalizing the desire of where's my food coming from or the pain of not seeing what I'm eating and saying no, what I really need is connection to Hashem. That is the ultimate value that we need to teach ourselves for our brain to focus and to put those other pains to the side. And if we can do that, then we can keep the entire Torah, we can observe the laws relating to immorality, we can observe the laws relating to divine service, we can observe the laws relating to our fellow man because we're able to be enough in control because we have the real value attached to us more than anything else called what Hashem says is the truth, is the truth to which I become attached, and I thereby connect to him. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Let's get the questions and comments if anybody has any. Wow, it must have been really clear and easy to understand. Nobody, oh, Dr. Harwitz, you want to unmute, please?
4: Yeah, with this new with this new system over here, I can't get to the uh I can't get to the um I can't raise my hand fast enough.
1: No problem. Try to put that thing to the side, and we'll we'll be good.
4: Well, I know I know where it is. It just takes me a few seconds to bring it all up. Um, so the another painful thing about this, you know, we're talking about money, kind of being the the pure word of shem. Here's something: you're you're buying a, a five and a half. You're bringing home for each family member a five and a half pound bunch of wafers, and you're somehow getting it into your stomach the whole day. And yet, there's uh, there's nothing to it. You know, it, it doesn't bloat you. It, it doesn't come out anything. So, what's the question? Uh, the, the question is that's another. Um, it's a
3: pain.
4: Well, that's what's yeah, painful, so what's, but kind of this this conjugate thing about it. you bring it home this right. No, it's is, it's is, quite is, it's quite a volume of of money.
3: Right,
4: and, 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 and yet, and yet, there's nothing to it. It's like it's so like, so like the it's like it's like the uh, it's like the Aron or something.
1: Yeah, so what's really interesting about that is you're right, 100% right. And so the question you're asking is, why were the people not worried about the exploding? And what's fascinating is is that according to the rabbis, the first generation Jews were not worried about that. The second generation Jews were actually worried about that. They were worried about consuming all this money and that they were not actually going to explode, which tells me that the first generation Jews, as as counterintuitive as it seems, they got somehow a little more comfortable with the concept of transforming themselves into a different level and kind of physical being. And the second generation Jews were not as comfortable with that. Okay. But I'm just telling you, if you look later in the Torah, in it does seem like they, it calls it the lechem ha that the rabbis understand as the food that would cause them ruin. Because they did not need to use the rescue. So that's just an interesting point. I mean, you're raising a very good point. I'm just saying, it's interesting how it seems to depend on which generation of Jew we're talking about. Okay, who who who, uh, is that Steve?
2: Yeah, hi, it's Charles. Steve, Um this, Steve, you're
1: this, being, uh, very, very uh, formal today. We're very uh, happy to have
2: you like this. Uh, this seems like a bigger issue then it's just okay you know so i, I have a good attitude towards my mind you know and uh, but at least for me maybe i'm the only one in the room but i make like career choices that dramatically pull at my resources like like am i like lacking uh, th- just like they were lacking, like an understanding of what the man was. Like, th- should I actually be applying this process to my own career choices in life, and my own, um, you know, how much I eat? You know, do I eat too much? Do I eat too little? Like, is it? Because a lot of times in the shir that, that Rabbi gives is, is like you end up saying like. It's not very comfortable, but this is a big deal, and I'm starting to feel like this is a big deal. What we just learned today.
1: Yeah. So, um, Dr. Finkelstein is going to respond. Uh, but if I understand your question correctly, you're asking, I think, well, how do I apply this to like business and career decisions, and how critical is it to, to do know, it?
3: Yeah. So, part of the, I think, part of this is that that there's a, I think, the mod is kind of the framework of what of what is this which is sort of like, you know, it really means, what it really means is that we need to take our own sense of control with a grain of salt. And that it's not that we don't have some control. Shem's given us the ability to make choices for sure. But that, you know, to that there's the betacha in the certainty that like whatever we're encountering is God, what else could it be, right? So yeah, when we're experiencing powerful winds and our eyes light up, And, you know, a conversation yesterday with a colleague of mine, we we got a a potentially large donation and then, you know, immediately I I called and I was so excited. Oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. This is Joel, you know, he he brought like, Listen, if if God's giving this to us, there's probably some reason for it. There's probably there's probably some there's probably something that's coming along that we're going to need this for. And we need to be grounded and serious about what we're doing. And and immediately I was like, that's totally true. Like, so, the, so immediately the ups and downs of these consequences are tempered. That's the whole point of the mon right? The whole point of what is this is that like when I'm facing what I think is a crisis, that's God. When I'm, when I'm winning the lottery, that's God too. I go up and there he is. I go down I go, Who knew? Right. So I think at that point, the batachlan then takes it it it, 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 it kind of tempers this idea that I'm in control, which is what the eyes want to do. Right by by changing things to the to the way they want to see them, which is what our plans and schemes want to do by creating a hoarding capacity for for value and for you know without making the attribution that that too is God. So, I think that that was my
1: yeah no that's uh, that's very important. Um, I think what you're describing, I think what Dr. Nilsson is describing, and I think Steve, what you're also hitting on, which is a big issue that the Torah is telling us here is that it's very important that we become less desperate about the things that we are convinced that we absolutely need. Mm -hmm. And the way that we can tell if we're in desperation or not is if we've turned off our brain and we're kind of in that uh, amygdala brain uh, mode and we become either overcautious or without caution, right? So we have to really um, be present in the, in the very strong cerebral state and really be in control of ourselves. And the only way that that's possible, but I'm saying in order to make decisions, the only way that that's possible is if we don't desperately need the physical financial security. And if we don't desperately need the physical, uh, sensory pleasure, uh, fulfillment, if we're in desperate need of either of those things, we're in trouble. Does that make sense in in terms of how to apply it to your business, et
2: cetera, et cetera? Unmute. Yes, Uh, that's great guidance. And um, that provides sort of a a, a rail that I can ask this question when I'm posting it. Am I feeling very desperate? Am I feeling very sort of gluttonous? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome.
1: Terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody else with a question or comment? Joseph or uh, Sharif, Alan, Alicia, we're all good. Okay, so uh, it was a pleasure to uh, be with all of you. We look forward, God willing, for next week. Uh, Sharif, we missed you the last couple of weeks, so wonderful to have you back. Good to see you. Okay. Travis, everyone. Let's catch up this Sunday.
2: You're us You're us everyone. Jobous, everyone. thank you. Uh, yeah, let's, let's catch up, Joel.